0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Political Beats. Here, a presentation of National Review. Remember, subscribe to our feed with new episodes on Mondays, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn, plus right there at nationalreview.com. You can click on the podcast tab and find all of our old episodes, our new ones, plus the uh, rest of the National Review podcast family. Uh, This is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Political Beats is where we talk with people who are in politics, covering politics, discussing politics, analyzing politics about nothing political whatsoever, but only about their favorite music and their favorite band. And I do it every week alongside my co-host, Jeff Blair, who stands by now. Jeff, how are you?
1: Uh, actually, I'm a little tied up here, Scott. I gotta say, if somebody just served me with a complaint, uh, they're apparently suing Political Beats for plagiarizing itself. Oh, no! Oh. Um. Yeah, it's funny how this happens. Uh, Apparently our shows are starting to sound too much alike. The good thing is we get to go on
0: the witness stand and bring two episodes up and play them back and explain how we can do two similar
1: episodes, but they're still different. Exactly, exactly. And hopefully we'll triumph over over the evil evil label that has done this to us.
0: (laughs) Uh, We welcome in our guest for this week's show. Uh, you can find him on Twitter, at Philip Wegman. He's a writer at the Washington Examiner. Crank it out to multiple pieces a day, usually, up at washingtonexaminer.com. He's Philip Wegman. Philip, thank you for joining Political Beats. Hey, thanks for having me here. Uh, so before we get to the uh, the band and, and your 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 monologue on that band, we first ask every guest we have... What is your political beat? How did you get uh, into this uh, political realm that you currently work at the Washington Examiner?
2: Well, I have to uh, I have to blame Hillsdale College's John Miller for uh, pushing me towards journalism. He's definitely the one who got me inspired in this uh, not too long ago. I graduated from that fine institution uh, back in 2015, and I found my way to the Examiner about a year ago. Um, I'm on their editorial team. So I work uh, with my editors, Tim Carney and David Ferdoso, and then a team of other really talented journalists. And uh, I am particularly happy that we're, that we're uh, recording this podcast right now because you're saving me <laughs> from having to uh, opine about Mr. <laughs> Flynn and uh, all of that craziness right now
0: you'll have ample opportunity i would imagine in the coming days so don't worry about uh, that. Know,
2: this is totally gonna blow over we won't be talking about <laughs> this you know. yeah, it's a one-day story yeah yeah you know. well
0: it, it might be one day that something bigger happens tomorrow right <laughs> <laughs> well it's, it's, it's
2: not six o'clock yet so yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, we haven't even gotten to the Friday news dub. For those who are unaware, we're taping this on Friday, uh, December 1st, and uh, you may or, may or may not know that some very big news in the world of Washington, D.C. just came down the pipe, uh, which we will now completely ignore. That's right, because we don't talk about that kind of
0: stuff here. We talk about great bands and uh, people who love them. This week, we introduce Philip Wegman and uh, his chosen band that we focus on for the next hour or so here on Political Beats, a uh, relatively short career for this band uh, but that they worked hard before they became Creedence Clearwater Revival once they took on that uh, moniker well about 4 years 5 years cranking out album after album we talked about Ryan Adams in the last episode who made 3 albums in 1 year hey CCR did the same thing 30 40 years prior to Ryan Adams doing it so take that they did it in 1969 Uh, tons of singles, tons of hits, and uh, due to circumstances involving the record label, which we'll discuss later, you probably have heard their songs at about 1.2 billion movies, commercials, infomercials (laughs) through the years. It's Creedence Clearwater Revival. Phil, we turn the uh, floor to you to explain to us, um, how did you get into CCR? Why do you like them so much? Why should everyone else care about Creedence Clearwater Revival?
2: Uh, So, the first time I heard Credence, I think it was when my brother was playing it. And he's he was in high school, and I was in middle school, and I really, really liked the sound. Um, I was too young at the time to appreciate bands like Pink Floyd, and I wasn't pretentious enough to pretend to like The Grateful Dead. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I just kind of fell in love with CCR, and I remember... Stealing and uh, stealing a CD out of his case. I think it was just like a, a compilation album. It wasn't even even one of their um, you know originals. It was just the greatest hits. And I remember burning that onto my iPod and listening to that constantly. And then you know when I'd be home alone at the house, I I, I blasted uh, you know up around the bend. Um, and I think I've ruined our speaker system. So if my parents are listening, I'm sorry <laughs> about that. But um, yeah, I just really loved CCR because uh, back then I didn't know that they weren't actually from the South. I didn't realize that they kind of appropriated that. And I was a kid growing up in uh, really rural Indiana. And so some of the things that they were singing about, the noise that they were making, sounded uh, very familiar to me. And I I latched onto that. And I think that um, what I loved about them then is something that I still love about them now, and that's that they are inherently American, and and I don't mean that in like the cheesy, mm-hmm. um, you know, Bruce Springsteen eighth grade poetry <laughs> way. Um, I mean that in sort of they had simple, straightforward songs. There weren't a lot of changes, um, you know, in the riffs, and then they were always easy to listen to, and they sang about things that were happening in the moment and then also things that, that, you know, transcended, uh, the decade that they were part of. And so, you know, for instance, like fortunate son, um, everyone sees that as it is the, the famous protest, uh, song for the Vietnam war. But I think it is much more than that. In that, um, you know, by, by Fogarty's telling, he was kind of irked that, uh, you know, the Eisenhower and Nixon children were coming together, mm-hmm. um, and, and growing closer in that regard. Um, and so it's, it seems then, and also now is this sort of protest, not just against, you know, the war itself, but also a protest kind of against this elitism, um, this sort of cronyism and this idea that it's not just that they're not going to go fight, you know, in their wars, they're also not going to go, you know, play against you know, in, in the kind of society that's was set up. And so, um, I think that, that is also uh that is also applicable today. But yeah, I mean I like I like credence because you know, they're simple and they're honest and they're unpretentious. And um, you know, compared to a lot of the other bands out there then like they're they weren't psychedelic, they weren't trying to be. Mm-hmm. Um, they just ran with their own sound. And uh, you know, in comparison to others, and this is not the right classification for them, but it's almost like they were um Almost like they were kind of punk rock in that they didn't do what other bands were doing and they made a decision to avoid that. Um, So, like, they were more or less sober. They kind of avoided, uh, you know, a lot of the flower power hippie stuff. And Drew were just, you know, dudes in flannels making good music. And I think that decades (laughs) later, we still see that there's value to that
1: yeah i mean for me credence clearwater revival it's like again i i use this analogy uh i can't even remember oh it was hollow notes i talked about it's like i'm no i'm no more aware of the moment i discovered credence than i am moment i discovered oxygen because it's just (laughs) it's one of these things where you have just been living and breathing it your entire life Mm -hmm. you know the maybe the first memory i have is uh uh which is an album that we'll probably talk about probably near the end of the show one of the most famous compilations ever made chronicle uh which is you know one of the early cds that my dad had my dad was an early adopter of cds and one of the first cds he bought was queen's clearwater revivals chronicle so i had all those songs there's 20 songs on that record and you know you could have filled it up with 20 more and it would have been great. But I didn't realize that at the time. I just thought, well, this is this is Creedence Clearwater Revival. These songs, everybody knows, "Proud Mary," everybody knows "Fortunate Son." Um, I didn't realize until much later that they were far more than just a singles act, and that's kind of the the, the shame I think uh, about Creedence Clearwater Revival is that. To this day, for a band that has all these hits, that is ubiquitous, that basically nobody dislikes—I've never met a person who disliked Creedence. It's like it's like saying you know <laughs> you dislike your mom. You know, no, everybody likes Creedence Clearwater Revival, but not a lot of people realize that they were more than just a singles act. These albums are almost uniformly superb. The stuff that you don't know, that you haven't heard, the covers, the uh, the weird throwaway songs are just as good as anything else, and they managed to cram it all into such a tight period, which mm-hmm. is probably one of the most amazing explosions of you know work yeah. of talent uh, that the rock era ever saw. When you think about it, you know the first album comes out in '68. Yes, they'd been playing for decades before that. That first album came out in '68. Their last great album came out in 1970. That's two years. Two years in that band's life, where they put out five, six albums that are up there with some of the greatest things that rock music ever did. And one of the reasons I'm really looking forward to this discussion today is that, you know, too many people just think, oh, it's the stuff I hear on the radio. And you hear a lot of credence on the radio because they're that great of a band. But believe me, every one of these albums is worth getting into as well.
0: And um, we'll talk more about later the, the legacy and, and how people view the band. But I, I went back and looked because I the Rolling Stone list of top 500 albums of all time, and I'm by no means saying that that's a, that's a, a uh, you know, a, a, a one that you should rely on as being the God's honest truth, but I think it's kind of a, a, a popular look at the, at what is considered the best albums right. of all time. By it's, how it's how they're I, seen. How they're seen, right. And on the top 500 albums of all time, the number of artists that have multiple albums, there's a big list you can find on Wikipedia. Someone has, you know, Neil Young has eight albums, Dylan has nine. CCR has one album on that list. It's Willie and the Poor Boys, and it's at number 309. That's the popular perception of what the, you know, the, the recorded output of CCR was. Uh, great singles, but the albums are not considered to be all-time greats, or at least, you know again, popularly considered to be all-time greats, and they should be. Um, they should be. And there's some reasons why. I think
1: we'll talk later about that, but they, they certainly should be. I couldn't agree with you more, and I think that you can start right. I mean, the first thing you got to say about CCR—the brief history—is that, you know, this is a band that had been playing. It's not like one of these acts that came together. They didn't all meet in uh, film school. They didn't. Uh, they're not like the Doors or something yeah. like that. You know, they're 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 not. They were hippies or anything like this. These guys had been playing shows with one another since the late fifties, the early sixties. All right, John Fogarty his brother tom fogarty um uh, Stu cook and doug clifford these four guys had all in fact i think um geez i think john originally wasn't the member of the first band the first band was a trio which was just uh, uh tom fogarty Stu, and doug and they were all playing together and they had just you know there's a song that we'll get to called lodi mm-hmm. uh which is you know about like you know playing all these run down bars and crappy small podunk towns and not really getting anywhere i mean they spent over a decade trying to get a foothold in the music business with no luck john fogarty got drafted in yes. the middle of it for yeah. god's sakes joined the army and got out of the army and came back to the gig afterwards and then finally finally after a period uh, as a really horrible band called the They had a horrible name called the Gollywogs, which is one of those things I think people have always held against uh, CCR in some ways because that's a, a, frankly, if you go Google the term, it's kind of a racist slur. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, They changed their name. They suddenly started focusing on writing songs, and I don't even understand how they made this amazing transition. If you hear those early singles, you can find them. They're not good. They're really actually quite terrible. And then suddenly – 1967 happens, late 1967, and John Fogerty figures out who he wants to be and what he wants to sound like, and then you have their first single, which is a song called Porterville, with a really nice B-side called Call It Pretending, and it sounds like, hey, this is Creedence Clearwater Revival. Suddenly, from nothing, it starts. And I think, and I think had that first album. what what
2: with that 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 single that you have, like if I'm not mistaken, that was recorded back when they still were the, the, the gollywogs and yes. you know just to kind of defend them here, they were blue velvet before that. I mean, these were yeah. guys who met in middle school and they were just mm-hmm. scrapping, you know, at, at dances and, and bars just to get ahead. And so when they signed with Fantasy, um when they signed with them, I think the name change happened. Because the producers were hoping that they could kind of catch on with the British invasion. And from what I've seen, uh, you know both the Fogarty Brothers absolutely hated this name. And so finally, with the new sound, you know, when they get out of the military, um, they change their name to CCR. And I think there's that focus, you know, with that song, and then also with Suzy Q, which happens shortly afterwards, where they kind of decide, we have a new name. We have this sound that we want to chase that's our own, and we're going to take ownership and really just do the best we can um, and see how far this thing will take us.
1: Yeah, and and I got to say, you know, Scott, I want your opinion on this, but I'm going to come right out and say I think that first Creedence Clearwater Revival album, the self titled album in 1968, is the most underrated thing that they've ever done. I think, honestly, I listened to that album and I enjoyed every bit as much as something like Cosmos Factory. Uh, with all the later hits even though m- most of the stuff on this one is more obscure than, uh, than their later albums I love it I love it to death and I want to know if anybody else is with me or are you people just going to be wrong
3: um,
0: <laughs> I, I, I think Fogarty's songwriting is not quite there on the debut album. Uh, two of my favorite songs are covers from from the first album. Uh, the first song on the first album, I Put a Spell on You, what a great right. vocal performance by Fogarty. Uh, the, the Screaming Jay Hawkins tune, that just busts out of the speakers um, yes. for, for that first album. And the other uh, cover that I love is 99 and a Half Won't Do, where mm-hmm. Fogarty's vocal, I mean, you, you, he would fit right in. With Wilson Pickett and the guys on stacks, I mean the, the, his his vocals are just tremendous. We got the- A live version on a re release that just smokes of 99 and a half won't do. I, I've never been the world's biggest Suzy Q fan. It gets a little circular for me as it, as it stretches out to eight minutes. Um, yeah, it's a bit amateurish. It's
1: like we got to make the song long to get like underground radio play, and they don't really know what to do. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, but but the one thing that I think is clear, and this is a Fogarty quote that I. I saw this transition between what they were and what they were going to be. Fogarty said, look, I gave up trying to write songs, sappy love songs about stuff that I didn't know about. And he started inventing stories um, yeah. for his songs. And that's such a big part of what CCR was on the first album and would be in the in the forthcoming albums, was Fogarty... I mean, there's... You can count the quote-unquote love songs on one hand through their catalog, probably. But it's, it's, it's stories about mood and time and place. And some of the stories are made up a bit. Some of them are real, but transported to, to different places. And that that was very apparent on album one, as was um, Fogarty's penchant for kind of writing from the uh, lower class point of view. Well, there's a song right on there called The Working Man. Um, And that would pop up all over the place, this... this, um, this vision he would have in his songwriting about, you know, working poor, lower class eyes. Um, I mean, as Phil said earlier, it's just it's very America, um, not not quite Americana, as we would call it today in, in, in today's music, but just, you know, American music. And CCR was all about that from album one. And you,
2: you talk about the storytelling and then also the ability to kind of make it uh, biographical, but also twist things a bit. I mean, Porterville definitely. Um, is inspired by you know John Fogarty's father deciding to you know leave the family, but uh, he twists it and he changes it in such a way where uh, you know that event in the real world takes on so much more significance where he's talking about where he's talking about the you know the shame that you know has been brought on him and how he wants to get out of this town and how he wants to move forward and yeah, there's like the teenage angst, but there's also a, a, a darkness here that I think sometimes mm-hmm. you miss in a lot of these CCR songs, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. because they are you know so upbeat and because the the music is so powerful. Um, but yeah, like I, I think with Porterville, that's where um, Fogarty starts to realize, you know, I don't need to just sing these covers. I don't need to do love songs. I can actually do, you know, music that tells stories and sometimes stories that aren't even that cheerier bright
1: darkness that's another thing that i want to talk about that i really enjoy on this album you see it in some of the other like you see some of this 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 uh, coming through in, in bay out country and in uh, green river a little later but this is a very kind of a dark creepy atmospheric album I put a spell on you, Susie Q sounds like some sort of weird fever dream. Even 99 and a half won't do. Turns into, you know, it's yep. a, you know a Wilson Pickett song, but it has that very kind of spooky opening that almost sounds like haunted house music and Walk on the Water, which is the last song on the record, probably one of the four or five most underrated things that CCR ever did. Uh, It's a remake of an earlier tune. They actually released it as a Gollywogs track a couple years before where they said, we can do this better. Um, All of this stuff is very moody and very dark. And then one thing that really contributes to that, that is really underrated when it comes to CCR is John Fogarty's lead guitar Mm playing. Nobody talks about John Fogarty as a guitarist. People just think of him as a songwriter and a singer because his I mean the voice just almost conquers everything. It's just I I was talking about this last night. It sounds like the Incredible Hulk got put (laughs) in front of a microphone. And it's just like like you can almost feel like you can see like the neck muscles bulging as he sings. Um, But his guitar tone is wonderful on this. It reminds me of Neil Young. I listened to uh, the guitar solos on like The Working Man. And, And I put a spell on you in 99 and a half. And that straight up sounds like Neil Young From the Buffalo Springfield days or from his early solo career on stuff like, uh, you know, uh, The Loner uh, off of the self titled Neil Young debut album, which was coming out actually right around this time. Very similar guitar tone, very similarly emotive playing style. Not flash, just sort of like you hear anger Mm and you hear real, like, I don't know, it, it, working class rage. Get yeah. me out of this crap hole town. He just comes through in the way he plays his guitar. And it's one of those things that nobody talks about when they talk about what CCR brought to the table that I think deserves to be recognized. And and, and so I'm no apologist
2: for Fogarty. I think that his sins in breaking up the band and then also um, some of the lawsuits that happened after the fact really – are you know a a strike on uh, on his record but when you consider the fact that he's not only writing and producing but then also doing guitar on top of that uh Everything. the ownership of you know these songs i i think he has a, a good case for it that he was able to do both of those things singing and the guitar well and kind of carry the band i, I think that that goes to his credit
1: yeah, I mean, of course, and the irony is that he doesn't own any of these songs anymore. No. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's the tragedy of CCR, is that they had to sign a horrible contract, yep. and we're going to get to that. I guess this takes us to the next album. This is the first of the 1969 trifecta. My God, the sheer productivity in one year from this band is, is mind-blowing. I can think of only Ryan Adams is, is another guy who did it in 2005. And El- Elton John. Uh, putting out two albums a year in the early 70s. uh, Fairport Convention did that. Very few bands or artists can claim to have put out so much quality material. The first one, in my opinion is the weakest of them. This is bio-country. You know, I never know how to pronounce that word. Bio, bio, whatever. This is the album that has Proud Mary on it, people. That's what you know it for. (laughs) Proud Mary is one of the most famous songs in the history of Western popular music, a song that I still, to this day, we marvel about this periodically, cannot believe was written. It's just it's a song that should just have existed as a folk tune sung by people on the river on the Mississippi River for like a hundred years. but no, some guy from Northern California, you know, out in the boonies sat down <laughs> looking at a at a white wall in his apartment and wrote this song. and it is one of the greatest pieces of American music uh, popular music ever created. I am a bit more mixed on the rest of the album, but I'll let Scott take that from
0: here. Yeah, I I think this is going to be perhaps an episode where there's a lot of agreement because I I also think for the most part of Bayou Country, it's it's not as good as Green River. It's not as good as Willie and the Poor Boys. Um, There's only seven songs on the album. So if you dislike one, you you, you don't like like 20% of the album. Um, And those two long blues jams. Those are the ones that bother
1: me. Those are really Mm -hmm. tough.
0: Graveyard Train is this slow, loping, eight and a half minute song that I, I don't really like all that much uh keep on chuglin is uh I, I i was not there at the time uh, apparently was a huge live favorite when ccr would play live uh but it's mm-hmm. another bluesy eight minute long song with some harmonica and, and that's uh and those two songs for me kind of dragged the rest of it down there's a pretty decent cover of good golly miss molly uh and, and my friend michael coolidge who hosts a radio show used that as his uh, opening music for his radio show for years so that's that's how i connected in my mind um Bootleg's a really nice track. Um, there's this acoustic foundation to the song, which is kind of unusual for CCR. There's so much of you know fogarty's lead electric. Bootleg is really built around this acoustic guitar. It's um, a Tom
1: fogarty song. He's the one who plays the the real the root of that. It was just the yeah that acoustic yeah. guitar. And um,
0: and it's then rhythm. you know you you talked a bunch about Proud Mary, which which again what, what more mm-hmm. do you say about that? But but Born on the Bayou, the first track, that that swampy open that vocal performance and as phil mentioned earlier you know these guys had never been to the bayou never been to louisiana they're california kids and and fogarty took uh, you know took took listeners um and the band to a different place uh with born in the bayou it would kind of give them that swamp rock label that certainly they'd wear for at least the next album through green river as well um but yeah i, I think of the three of 69 bayou countries the, the weakest but how weak can you be when you when you feature proud mary i suppose uh phil
2: I've got to agree with you. Um, I think that this is you know, the, one of the turning points for them. Um, but just jumping off of what you just said, I mean, think about the confidence it takes for someone from California to be like, yeah, I'm going to write music like I'm from the South, and everyone's going to go along with it. That's just insane <laughs> that this work.
1: Everyone's going to be fooled. I mean, there's, yeah. he doesn't sound inauthentic at all, which is – At all. makes it so cool that he could be a poser, but do (laughs) it so effectively. And then you talk about
2: process. I mean, with like Proud Mary, he's literally staring at the wall. And I think I I listened to an interview with him a while back. Um, He kind of got the melody, but he wasn't certain where he was going. And so um, he had written down Proud Mary as a possible song title earlier. And just suddenly everything sort of comes together in this really like jumbled, um, unprocessed way. And thank goodness that it did, because that—that's the spark. I mean, once he writes that song, then he's just prolific. Uh, you know, three albums in that year, and I'm thinking to myself that—that's how Proud Mary came together in this like <laughs> dis- disjointed, random fashion. And then he goes on to have this incredibly crazy career with all of these hit singles. It's just—it's mind boggling that he was so lucky.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing I'll say is just before we move on is that I, bootleg Scott mentioned it. I think is is the other really great song that that he wrote on this album. I I could listen just to the opening introductory riff, the do mm. do 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 do, we could listen to that on repeat uh, for you know twenty minutes and not get bored of it. It's just it's a, a tribute to how you can take an incredibly simple instrumental sound. That's just a guy playing an acoustic guitar with you know you know a little little lead and a little bass and some drums and the most simple elements imaginable turn it into something purely hypnotic that song it was a sign of great things to come. And of course that brings us to wow, a Green River. This is it's like just it's like we're scaling one height after another. <laughs> green River is an amazing album. You know every song on this album people. You know Green River, you know Commotion, you know Bad Moon Rising, you know Low Die. And if you don't know the other songs then the the funny thing is you're missing out on some of the best music of Credence's career. I'm going to just... One song I want to single out in particular. And then I'll let you guys talk about this album, which is fantastic. But the one I love is called Wrote a Song for Everyone. Mm -hmm. And this is that moment when I was getting into Credence's discography, you know, after having heard Chronicle. And I got to Green River and I heard this song and I just sat there like I couldn't even believe it. I was like, first of all, why wasn't this a single? Why wasn't this on the greatest hits? Why is this not a song that everyone knows? It's one of the most powerful social comments that anybody wrote in the 60s. This is better than, you know, like, this makes Jefferson Airplane, you know, singing about, you know, volunteers like up against the wall, MFers, uh, and all of the silly hippie protest stuff. It looks trite compared to Wrote a Song for Everyone, which has the chorus that it just, kills me every single time which is i wrote a song for everyone i wrote a song for truth i wrote a song for everyone but i couldn't even talk to you and my god every time he gets to the end of that chorus it sounds like he has the burden of like a hundred years of living just you know bearing down on his body the sadness it's devastating it's a beautiful song um saw the people stand in thousand years in chains someone said it's different now look it's just the same and you've got to hear the way he sings that to understand how just dismissive and, and almost c- contemptuous the way he throws off the words in that song for the full power of it to come through. I love this song. This song is everything that John Fogarty could ever be as a songwriter and specifically as a lyricist.
0: And it comes out of a personal experience. See, this is one of the few songs in the canon that I, I think is 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 it's not quite a love song, but it comes out of family. He had a young wife, and he was trying to crank out these songs, and and um, and and the communication was poor. And that's where mm-hmm. I think Fogarty said it was kind of how many how many great people in history, songwriters, leaders, um, couldn't manage their own families. And that's kind of where where the song came out of, and that chorus came out of. And it's a beautiful song, one of my favorite slower. CCR songs Uh, you know Green River is like the apex of what they had started from the from the first album I think that you know Robert Christow um, Christow has a, a piece that Jeff had shared with us and he made a great point which is if you look at CCR from start to finish and you don't look real closely it all kind of jumbles together but when you when you listen and when you see the transitions from album to album there are so many of these small Tiny things that change that really are different from album to album and song to song. So I think Green River is kind of like the end of that first trilogy of albums, and Willie and the Poor Boys would would kind of do a little something different. Green River is a very dark, foreboding record. You talk about how dark the first one was, Jeff, but but Green River is pretty dark too. Uh, yeah. to- Tombstone Shadow, this threat of death. Every time I get some good news, the uh, shadow on my back. Uh, Lodi, uh, which is uh, my dad worked for a company that had a, a a place in Lodi, I think a production factory, and so he would have to travel out there every now and then. I always thought of the CCR song when he went out to Lodi, California. I but, wonder uh, how the
1: people living in Lodi feel about having that song <laughs> named after them. Like, it, it's kind of depressing. It's basically saying this, yep. th- this song is a monument to how awful your talent is.
0: Yep, yep. And it's kind of like you know they had lived it through the 60s before they got big, and it's almost like Fogarty's nightmare of what could happen to them to them if they didn't work their butts off i mean mm-hmm. cosmos factory is a, is the title is you know fogarty made them go every day in practice and crank out songs and the band wanted to kind of slow down enjoy themselves and fogarty said if we are not in the charts people will forget about us we're gonna be stuck playing in lodi without bus fare to get home
2: I think just jumping off of that point, one of the reasons why we see so many hits on on these three albums this year is because the they're a product of the label that signed them. For crying out loud, they signed with a jazz album. And so there wasn't a lot of promotion that was going to push these guys forward. They had to make certain right. that their music was going to make the sale for them. And if they weren't on the radio, if they weren't on Top 40, like you said people were going to forget them and i think that um this shows through when like these guys show up to the studio and you know from what i've read they're not they're not waiting for inspiration in the studio instead they're already ready to go because they they know that uh they have to record these hits mm-hmm. and they don't have a lot of cash earlier on um you know for studio time and so just because of John Fogerty being the leader when they show up everything is good everything is is done and I think that um, they were able to produce so many albums that year because um, you know he just was so strict and I, I think the average time for a single album was like two weeks or something
1: One other thing I want to say before we move on. This is like one of those things that gets lost, but if you sit back, you hear it, and everything Credence did is that sound. And Green River is the best embodiment of that band sound. These guys, it's probably because of all the woodshedding that Fogarty made them do and all the practice, And, and also the way that Fogarty knew he wanted the production that he wanted to give them. But every time they could... Just walk in and create a song that sounded good, like ear candy. There was just something about the way that Fogarty's guitar and his brother's rhythm guitar and the bass and the drums came together, those four elements, as I talked about earlier, that's just on an elemental level, fundamentally satisfying. And I guess i've never quite understood why nobody else can reproduce this why doesn't every band try to sound like Creedence clearwater revival on green river just the instrumental ensemble because it, it shouldn't be hard to do in theory these are not like this is not sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band okay <laughs> it's four guys in a room there isn't even that much overdubbing except for harmonies right and yet nobody has ever sounded like that it's it's such a remarkable achievement, and the thing is that it gets neglected because you don't even notice it. They're so good at it that they 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 draw you away from one of their primary virtues by making it seem so effortless.
0: And, and quickly before we move on to uh, Willie and the Poor Boys, I, I have to mention Bad Moon Rising, which, which everyone oh, yeah. knows, one of the most distinctive, recognizable opening rips in music history. Uh, I, I think one of the first times I. Was was uh knew about the existence of CCR was from the uh an American Werewolf in London soundtrack, which Mm -hmm. used Bad Moon Mm -hmm. Rising um it's such and a, a great, cheerful
1: song about death yeah it's just a very cheerful <laughs> pop hit about yeah you're gonna die tonight don't go outside
0: and and, and that tune in particular you know fogarty gets a lot of john fogarty gets a lot of the attention rightfully so wrote produced uh, mixed arranged uh, doug clifford it's a pretty damn good drummer and yeah. uh on bad moon rising he plays a kind of a complicated beat he's, he's just off rhythm a bit through most of the song and it works Perfectly, um, and, and Clifford, uh, I, I think his his uh, talent shines through on a number of songs through CCR's career. "Bad Moon Riser is definitely one of them. Where where, where he, uh, you know, is the star, but Clifford makes a lot of that song
3: work. Oh.
0: You can find us uh, at nationalreview.com, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in, subscribe. New episodes on Mondays. I'm Scott Bertram. He's Jeff Blair. Philip Wegman's with us talking Creedence Clearwater Revival. Find him on Twitter at Philip Wegman. He's a writer at the Washington Examiner. And his stuff all up at washingtonexaminer.com. And that brings us to the second album of 1969 released
1: three months after Green River. Willie and the Poor Boys, Jeff. Billy and the Poor Boys. Well, what can you say about it? Again, this is every one of these albums has, quote, one of the most famous songs of all time on it. <laughs> We're going to keep using that language. Uh, this one is, in my opinion, a bit of a step down from Green River, and uh, especially what comes right after it. I think uh, this is the one I always think of as being Creedence Clearwater's political album. Um, why? Because there are, I think, three songs on this uh, that I have a particularly political feel to them. Um, four actually, four songs that have a political feel to them uh, and all of those songs are, are basically all-time classics uh, and I think what I like the most about Fogarty's politics on these four songs I'm not going to keep you in suspense, it's, it came out of the sky mm-hmm. um, Fortunate Son, Don't Look Now, It Ain't You or Me, and then Effigy um, What I like the most about Fogarty's engagement with politics and his music is how unforced it feels. Bruce Springsteen God help him. I I am a Bruce Springsteen fan. I've taken some shots at him at various episodes of the show, but I'm I'm encyclopedic when it comes to Springsteen. Springsteen is super fond of covering Willie and the Poor Boy's era Creedence Clearwater Revival songs in his um, live shows. And it always sounds wrong coming out of Springsteen's mouth. It sounds forced. When Bruce Springsteen sings Fortunate Son, it does not have anything like the same resonance that John Fogarty, Army veteran, has when he sings Fortunate Son. Fortunate Son is one of those songs that has become forgotten in a way because it's become so popular that we just now hear it as the soundtrack to Forrest Gump and 60s documentaries, and we just think, oh yeah, it ain't me, it ain't me. Listen to the lyrics of that song. That song is as relevant now As it ever was in 1968 or 69, it's actually one of the most coruscating lyrics that you will ever find in a political song. And yet it it doesn't even announce itself like that. It's it's politics or working class politics. It's, It's this guy just saying like, listen, you know, all these rich people, these senators, sons, these children of privilege and wealth, they don't have to die or fight in the wars that I do. I, I, I went into the army, I did, I served my country. I'm the one who, who's, who, who pays for the decisions that you all make. It's very easy to wave the flag. I know we're trying to not – we don't talk about politics on this show, but I think you can't avoid talking about politics when you talk about Willie and the Poor Boys and specifically that song. I think the other one is um, Don't Look Now, It Ain't You or Me. It's one of my five favorite uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival songs, Easily. It's so subtle. It it doesn't even – he he sings it with uh, this sort of echoey kind of uh, 50s sun sound slapback reverb on his vocal. And if you don't pay attention, you don't know what he's saying. But he's asking, well, "Who takes the uh, who takes the, the the stones from the mine? Who will who will do everything in the world? Uh, don't look now; it ain't you or me." Um, he's basically making a point about working class politics about, you know, I'm the, pe- I'm the person who has to do everything to give you the comfort that you live in, but it doesn't sound accusatory. It doesn't sound angry. It sounds almost uh, sort of resigned and sadly cynical about the way things are. It's such a powerful way to approach it. My only other problem with Willing the Poor Boys is that there are too many songs on this record that I think are just kind of throwaways. There's, there's two instrumentals. Yep. Um, and I think Effigy goes on a little too long. But man, it's still a great record.
2: I mean, I think the, the authority comes from the authenticity of Fogarty. Like you were saying earlier, it's not just that he was in the military, it's also that he had this working class upbringing. And I mean, there are a lot of really, really bad protest songs. And yeah. somehow, Fortunate Son succeeds because almost despite itself, it's it's honest and it's uh, playing to his experience. And also, I mean, it's barely – I think it's like less than three minutes long. It's very short. It's very sweet.
1: Uh, it Dude, it's barely over two minutes finished. long. It goes so fast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It goes, I mean, that's the thing. That's the other thing about Koreans. They never waste your time. I was talking about this with Scott before we came on the air. So one of the great virtues of this band, really underrated virtue for any band, is where their albums aren't that long. I love a good, like, 35, 33-minute long album. The mm-hmm. longest Koreans Clearwater ever got was on Cosmos Factory, and I don't mind because Cosmos Factory is basically <laughs> stacked up to bottom that's with yeah. some of the greatest music ever made. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, you know, by the way, I guess we have to also mention this is the album with Down on the Corner which I'll say one thing about, which is uh, it is amazing to me that four incredibly white guys from Central Valley, California, or the Bay Area actually I think is where they're from, managed to sound um, as authentically like you know, like a black street corner band. That's the funkiest bass line, the opening on that. Mm-hmm. I actually don't know why that hasn't been sampled like a thousand billion times. That's a good point. Uh, you know, for hip hop tracks or yeah. for anything. Because it's just so compulsively toe tapped. They... dum 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 dum. Again, rock simple. If it's so simple though, how come nobody thought of it before these guys did?
2: what these guys are doing is just like you omit needless words, they're omitting needless sound. And so, Mm -hmm. at least in this uh, album, they don't go on too long for you to say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Like, they they get it right and then they move on without, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to make it into something that it's not.
0: Yep. And and where Green River was, again, I think a very dark uh, foreboding kind of record and and kind of the apex of uh, the swamp rock sound of those first two albums, there's a there's a change here. Willie and the Poor Boys, I think, is far more rooted in blues, country, and even a little folk. Um like Don't Look Now is is pretty folk. Cottonfield is very country. Um Feelin' Blue is probably their best blues original song. And, you know, I love, Feelin' Blue makes this, oh, things aren't going your way. You know, your girlfriend broke up with you. No, the lyrics are, you know, the walls are closing in and there's a rope in the tree for me. Uh, These are the things in a a blues song
1: that CCR writes. (laughs) Fogarty really, really need to emphasize the dark, dark tinge to all of Fogarty's lyrics. Absolutely. one of of the things that I'm only realizing now as we're talking about it.
0: And I I also need to mention, uh, you know, Proud Mary, uh, Jeff said this. You know, you you listen, and it sounds like it sprang up seventy years ago, and CCR actually wrote it. But it sounds like it's been around forever. On Willing the Poor Boys, they take uh, a song that's been around for seventy years in the Midnight Special and record it for me in a way that I don't know why anyone would want to do it again because it is so thoroughly a CCR song from the way they arrange it from the way that the harmony vocals that 50 second wind up at the start of the song where it's just Fogarty's voice and that guitar before the rest of the band kicks in uh, the Midnight Special is one of my favorite moments in CCR's career I, I just love what they did with that song and they made it sound like it should have been theirs all along
3: let the Midnight Special shine alive. Let the midnight special Shine a light on me Let the midnight special Shine a light on me Let the midnight
1: special Shine a ever-loving light on me The dream more, but of course this brings us to an album which I think we're all going to be falling all over each other to agree about. (laughs) Uh, Cosmos Factory, July 1970. Uh, People, I don't think you realize, this is an album where... There is literally one song, and that one song is two minutes long, mind you, that is less than a stone-cold classic. How could this Every, not be was, one of
0: the best 500 albums of all time, according yeah, to Rolling I, Stone? Yeah, that was told I mean, me. like, man, The
1: Poor Boys, that's the one they chose? How could this not be the one? <laughs> this is such a great album. Uh, it's almost... It's almost stupid to 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 try to go track for track through all these because you've heard them all. Traveling band. You've heard looking out my back door, run through the jungle, up around the bend. Who'll stop the rain? I heard it through the grapevine. Long as I can see the light. Every song on this album is amazing. Uh, the one I will single out, though, uh, because it's one that is less discussed, pr- primarily because it's one of the few that isn't a massive hit, is uh, the opening track. It's called Ramble Tamble. And uh, this is fascinating song for me because this is a you know, people talk Scott you talked about like well what are the signs of CCR's artistic growth they did sort of spring up fully formed like Athena jumping out of Zeus's head you know with their first album <laughs> yeah. uh, but they also changed over time they grew over time uh, what you saw on their earlier albums with you know Graveyard Train with Suzy Q even they weren't really good at the lengthy jamming stuff they would put on these long al- long tracks uh and it felt a little awkward it felt like this was a band that was better suited to shorter music because you know as, as phil just talked about you know they, they were editing out all the moments that didn't need to be there but on ramble tamble and then on another later song on this record for, uh, especially you have for the first time credence clearwater revival able to work in that longer form and just be fascinating every moment of ramble tamble it's kind of an unstructured song It. it starts as one thing and then it turns into a long guitar jam at the end but every moment of it is just a joy to listen to it takes you to some really interesting places and it proved that Fogarty was actually capable of evolving as a songwriter Um, this is non-standard Creedence Clearwater revival but I really recommend
3: it
2: Hands down on this album, I think. just Looking out my back door, I'm just happy that John Fogerty yeah. is happy for once. It seems like this is a yeah. this song. Like it, all of the music is, you know, upbeat. Like we've discussed earlier on, as far as the instrumentals, I mean, it's easy to jam to. But looking out my back door, like he's finally happy to be home to see his kid. Um, it's just, it's joyous that he is finally joyous, at least for a moment.
1: Up Around the Bend is like that too Up Around the Bend feels like one of the most relentlessly upbeat songs yes, on the, the planet the hand
0: claps the hand claps through the bridge in the second half of the song are just joyous they're fantastic right.
1: And he just scats the lyrics at the end, and it works just as well as it would if you were singing anything. That's
0: yeah. what I like. Uh, Ramble tumble, by the way, um, you know uh, Stephen Hyden, right? The music yeah, writer. of course. He, uh, he called Ramble Tamble the most rockin' song of all time. Now, I agree. Some, I can see it. There's some caveats as to what qualifies for that category, but he said the most, rock, most rockin' song of all time. You focused on the first track. I want to focus on the last track of the album, which is Long As I Can See the Light. Um, what a fantastic song. Oh, my goodness. These beautiful horns. There's a there's a lengthy sax solo organ through. There's a, this soulful groove through Long As I Can See the Light. It's kind of almost a very stonesy feel to it. <laughs> it, it from that era, you know, 70, 71 era uh, Rolling Stones stuff.
3: I'm bound to drift. Long As I Can See the
0: Light is just a wonderful close to Cosmos Factory. It would kind of give you an idea of what might happen next with Pendulum. We'll get to that in a second. But man, I love Long As I Can See the Light. And yeah, there are so many hits. I think that you know the songs we didn't talk about don't measure up. Uh before you accuse me, I <laughs> I've never been a big fan of that song overall. I mean, tons of people have covered it. Ubi uh, Doobie is not
1: a, a CCR high point. That's but, the one song on the record I think is subpar.
0: But yeah. man, oh man, the rest. I mean, uh, every war movie set in Vietnam has to either feature Fortunate Son or Run Through the Jungle. It's it's long. Or
1: Who'll Stop the Rain, actually. That's exactly yes. right, Who'll Stop the Rain.
0: It's it's in all of them. But uh, yeah, Up Around the Bend is so joyous. And I mentioned those hand claps. It's it's just a great song. And uh, heard it through a grapevine. What, 11 minutes worth of I heard it through a grapevine? Whereas I, Susie Q seems circular and a little lengthy at eight minutes. I I, I don't I I listen to all it. eleven minutes if I heard it through a grapevine. I have no it problem with it. that. I can't
1: believe it does sometimes. It earns every second. I never get bored the way I do with Susie Q. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, and Cosmos Factory would uh, would be that the, the uh, July 1970. They still have one more album in 1970. But before we get to that, um, I want to talk a little bit. And I know Jeff does too. You know, uh, you know they, they, he wrote Susie Q, made it eight minutes or, you know, arranged it eight minutes to get on the radio in San Francisco. And, and even though they had so much commercial success and top 40 success and double A side singles, they did not get the approval of the in crowd, you know, the hipsters uh, in San Francisco and in California. The critics didn't necessarily love them. And this is something that really drove John Fogarty nuts and sort of,
1: again, points to what we see next. I mean, it's a shame. It's a shame. I feel like it, it, it's, it's, in some ways to me, I feel like what made the band implode. There are, there are two dynamics uh, that, that conspired to rip apart Creedence Clearwater revival. One of them is uh, sort of the infighting, particular between uh, John Fogerty and his brother Tom Fogerty, and also the rest of the band, they, they want to have a little bit more creative control which I, I've i got to say, like, yeah, but dude.
3: He <laughs> seemed to be doing okay. His, it's like
1: it, it, he, this is John Fogarty. It's, yeah. it's like Ringo asking to write all the songs on the whiteout. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> you, you know which side your bread is buttered. Uh, but the other one is, as Scott says, the, uh, the perverse uh, sort of disdain with which Credence was treated by everybody else on the San Francisco rock scene uh, and also in the national press. Now, they, they had more fans in the national rock scene, uh, mm-hmm. the critical uh, fans, uh, than they did in their own local hometown. So Rolling Stone liked them. Uh, you know, Robert Criscow, who's, I would say, my favorite uh, music critic from that era of, of the big ones. Uh, he's the one I've always felt was most on point. He thought they were one of the greatest bands of all time because, I uh, said, he's, he's a smart guy and he should go read his stuff. You can go to his website and you can read his various writings about Creedence. They're worth it. Um, but at home, they couldn't get any respect. And I perversely... Or maybe not perversely, I think if you understand the way sort of social dynamics in these sorts of groups work, the more successful they became in terms of uh, chart success – The more disliked they were among the hippies. Mm -hmm. Oh, your pop sellouts. And of course, look at the way they carried themselves. These guys weren't wearing caftans, they weren't using patchouli oil. They were, you know, John Fogarty had a flannel shirt that he seemed to wear every single day, (laughs) and that was his uniform flannel button down shirts. These guys were non-hippies, and because of that, they were never accepted by the people who were the tastemakers on the scene, and what's worse is they seem to be denigrated as somehow not the artistic equal of bands that I think really have kind of faded into irrelevance. I'll I'll be honest with you. I know everything that Jefferson Airplane ever put out. I couldn't tell you a single song of theirs, not one song of theirs, that is as good as anything that Korean's Clearwater Revival ever did, they are a second-rate band compared to the band that was sitting right next door to them that couldn't get any attention paid to them uh, by the local scene. And I just think it's a shame that they weren't accepted. But that's that's like herd behavior, man. That's that that's basically just you know, bitchy social group dynamics. And what's
2: sad is when you look back at like 1969. I mean, obviously hindsight is 2020 but they defined that year with their three albums and yet Mm -hmm. no one remembers that they were at woodstock right i mean no no one remembers what they offered in the moment but you know in retrospect we see everything they were able to contribute
1: and i feel like it's contributed in later days to the fact that we we see them as a singles band this was a great album band all right yes all these songs are famous individually because of well i think fantasy records has a lot to do with that but they were working on the same sort of level that the beatles were or that like artists were that the the grateful dead were trying to work on and Failing, frankly, in their studio works, or uh, that the airplane was trying to do, or the Doors. I would take any Creedence album over any Doors album yes. any day of the week. Yes. And yet people think of the Doors as one of these great '60s bands, and they don't talk about Creedence. I don't know. It's still, it still it still ticks me off. I I I got got a chip on my shoulder about this.
0: And we might as well get to it here. And that is, I, you know, Fantasy did them no favors, I think, with how they treated their catalog through the years. I was talking to someone about. CCR before we we taped today and his very first memory was oh yeah I I was growing up and I remember the CCR infomercial they'd show on TV you know the two minute long hey call now three LPs three cassettes or later on two CDs for all your CCR hits and then they license the crap out of everything every movie has a CCR song uh you know a fortunate son you think of Wrangler jeans down in the corner you might want to stop at Walgreens for your prescription and (laughs) we've just been trained that all these singles are what made the band Um, And I think it's one of the reasons why the albums just don't get the love they deserve. They're not on these uh, best-of-all-time lists. Uh, And I think largely because when people grew up, they had Chronicle. They had a compilation. People weren't going out and buying Cosmo's factory necessarily to add to their collection. They weren't the way they were buying the White Album or Sgt. Pepper. All these compilations were available, and the airwaves on TV and radio were totally saturated with these double A-side singles that that Credence put out. And I just think it, it it hurt the way that they are thought of today in being just a band that made great songs and not a band that made great albums.
2: And I think you have to lay that at, at Fogarty's feet. I mean, he was really good at music and really, really bad at business. Yeah. He kind of just yeah. signed uh, signed away a lot of their rights with a terrible contract from the very beginning. And the irony here is that if he would have taken a step back and let someone else handle the the business decisions, I mean, for crying out loud, Stu had a business degree, Fokert didn't. <laughs> if he would have let him, you know, maybe take a look at some of the contracts. Do you think we could have had more albums? Uh, who knows? Um, but they, they just got, they got raked over the coals because of really dumb business decisions And that's because of the Fogarty dictatorship.
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that you can also see, you can see why it happened too. It's because of those 10 years, those 10 years that they spent trying to make it and failing to make it that, you know, when it finally happened, uh, he was just, he was so hungry. He couldn't help it. He just bit. He's like a starving animal. You feed him a steak. He's going to swallow it all at once. He's not going to, you know, think about whether, you know, there's poison in the steak or not. (laughs) That's exactly what happened. With CCR. And it's such a shame. And so, like, you can almost say that the seeds of their own destruction, their own collapse, were sown right at the beginning of their career um but at least they gave us so much great music in the meantime and of course that takes us to what i consider and i think maybe all of us are on the same page here the last great album of credence is clear i think it's a flawed album i Mm -hmm. think it's it's one of their weaker ones especially the way it ends which is inexplicable but pendulum which is uh the end of december 1970 um has, uh, among other things, the the song that you know, uh, because everybody goes by the, or oh, what are the chronicle songs on it? Everybody has heard Hey Tonight, which is a great song, and everybody has heard Have You Ever Seen The Rain? I will say that Have You Ever Seen The Rain is another one of my top five songs. It, it is, to me, the perfect embodiment of White Credence was perfect at putting together a two-minute and 30-second single yeah. that... Didn't try to do anything like weird. It wasn't, you know, this isn't sowing the seeds of love. This isn't strawberry fields forever. It's a simple change. You could pick up a guitar, teach yourself to play guitar, teach yourself this song as a beginner. The same day you learn to play guitar, it's that simple. And yet, it is just brilliant. And my favorite touch on it is uh, the organ. There's just a gentle organ line that goes through the whole thing, and it's it's very consolatory. There's the sadness of. You know, have you ever seen the rain coming down on a sunny day? It's obviously a song written about, the, I would assume, the inner turmoil of mm-hmm. the band, about how everything's coming apart with all the tensions in the group. So yes, everything's sunny here, but the, you can see the rain clouds are, are going to be pouring down on us. Um, but it also doubles as a social comment. That's the thing. It's such a versatile song. It has all these virtues compressed into this compact song. I would give my eye teeth to be able to write a song like Have You Ever Seen the Rain? <laughs> but the thing is, the only person who could ever do that is John Fogarty and uh, you know this is why I love this band yeah!
2: Absolutely. Can you imagine writing that song and also knowing that as you're performing that next to your older brother, he knows and you know that this is not just a social commentary, but also basically about the fact that the band is about to break up and Mm -hmm. that you and your brother are probably going to be
1: estranged. Yeah, I mean, God, it's such a heavy piece in that sense. Talk about the dark strain of John Fogarty's lyrics. But what a beautiful song. And uh, you know, the other one I the other one I talk about on Pendulum a lot, which I don't think it's a lot of credit, is something called It's Just a Thought. Um, just one of these pieces that is forgotten. It's not compiled on any record. I just highly recommend it to you. Very kind of quirky construction. Uh, and one of Fogarty's best vocals, I think, of his entire career with the band. The way he just sings that uh, that opening line and he comes back to it again that melody line is uh, it's it'll rip your guts out it's so beautiful But I mean, I, what do you, the rest of you guys, think about Pendulum?
0: Yeah, and this one has I mean, it's a little more stacks influence, right? It's got more mm-hmm. organ, it's got more uh, more horns through through the album, and it's meant to be consumed whole. You um, know, this this was meant to be, I think, from John Fogarty an album statement, no covers, right? All Fogarty originals on on Pendulum. Pagan Baby has this nasty riff to start things off. Doesn't really go where I think it should. Or, I It mean, doesn't, doesn't complete itself in, in the course of a song. Um, Sailor's Lament early on it reminds me of what the Beach Boys were doing right around that same time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Have You Ever Seen The Rain? Is such a standout track, and when you take everything into consideration, what was happening in the band, uh, what was going to happen next, Tom Fogerty was going to leave very, very soon, um, it's just a, I guess, 2 minutes and 12 seconds, whatever it is, is just a perfect piece of music from John Fogerty and, and, and CCR. Uh, the last uh, what third of the album lags for me. I'm not a big fan of Born to Move. Um, Chameleon has some soulful horns which are interesting to listen to, but I, I don't find myself, you know, wanting to go back again and again. Um, you know it, it, it's 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 better than Mardi Gras, but certainly not on the level of what CCR was used to putting out. and in probably those those tensions in the band from both a a management perspective and a contractual perspective and a personality perspective and a work 24-7, 365 perspective
1: beginning to to get to them. The the, the sign of hubris that you see showing up on this album is the fact that uh, Fogarty insisted on putting on that stupid sound collage, Rude Awakening, number two, Mm -hmm. at the end of it. Six minutes of pointless noise instead of doing, like, a couple really good covers, which would have made the album vastly better, and they could have rattled off in their sleep, no less. (laughs) Uh, But no, it had to be all songs written by John Fogerty because he wanted people to respect him as a songwriter. And what ended up happening is he he put six minutes of slop on the record and ended up diminishing the overall effect.
0: And that, you know, brings us to Mardi Gras, which is the final CCR album, uh, April 1972 released. Tom Fogerty's gone and so you've got a trio with Cook and Clifford and John Fogarty and, and the stories differ but depending on which side you believe. Uh, Cook and Clifford say that Fogarty demanded they come up with one third of the record or he was going to leave and shut CCR down. Uh, Fogarty's side is basically, hey, they wanted to have this artistic freedom and I gave it to him um, with a third of the album piece. Either way doesn't matter because it doesn't work very well at all. Um, even Fogarty's contributions on Mardi Gras, I think, are, are quite lesser than than they have oh. been on previous albums. Um, and Stu Cook is a pretty darn good bass player. He is not a good vocalist at all. Uh, <laughs> Sail Away That's is awful vocally. Door to Door is not very good uh, vocally. Clifford's a bit better. But, you know, these guys were, were not singing lead for a reason. One reason was Fogarty was in charge of everything happening in the band the other is they they just weren't at that level sweet hitchhiker the final track another classic ccr you know stomper is probably the best known track on the album Someday Never Comes is, is, is like Fogarty's Cats in the Cradle, right? Uh, about his parents' divorce and uh, uh, kids saying, when are we going to do this? And someday you'll understand. And, but it also has some uh, undertones of the band breaking up too and, and his impending divorce as well. So it's, it's just it's, it's, it's three pieces with cook and clifford and fogarty and they don't work well together and the band wasn't working working well together at this point and that would not last longer because fogarty was about to blow things up completely
1: it was one of it's one of the most astoundingly terrible albums ever released by a major band and that's really all i have to say about it uh you you covered the reasons it came to be pretty well there uh Fogarty, uh, clearly John Fogarty is a difficult person to work with, okay, Estranged strange to him, his brother, obviously a bit of a tyrant, and a tyrant uh, who, with amazing talent, obviously, but who also made some some pretty really poor decisions in terms of managing the band. so you can see why the rest of them were ticked off, um, but this almost feels like a very petty and spiteful reaction, saying, "Ah, you got to come up with a third of it oh, you really you really want equal input well, here's equal input, ha." Um, And I'm not even going to play on your songs or sing on your songs. I know. Is it like, yeah, I'm not even going to – I'm going to just overdub rhythm guitar on your songs. That will be my primary contribution to your work. Um, that's never what Creedence Clearwater are supposed to be about. And so this album is just a blot and a very sad way for the whole thing to end. And I guess, as I said, maybe the seeds of the band's destruction were sown uh, with their inception, with the original contract they signed and the way that Fogarty handled things. But it's a shame that it had to come to, to an end like this.
2: It's also a shame that like going into the studio to record that album, Fogarty had to know that this was going to be a bust. And it's almost like he was willing to let the rest of his bandmates get embarrassed mm-hmm. nationally. And he was just gonna sit back and be like, all right, it's up to you. Um, just very spiteful and completely unnecessary. Again, you know, take some time off. I think that they could have put together another good album, but instead, Fogarty wanted to to pout and embarrass his, uh, embarrass his friends.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and for what, too? Like, What did John Fogarty's solo career ever amount to? That's the other thing that's <laughs> yeah. surprising. He yeah. needed those guys. He didn't realize yeah. how much he needed the sound of that band and what they brought to it. Better or worse, man. For better or worse, that was an ensemble, and they knew how to play with one another. Yeah. And they knew instinctively how to like lay down routine songs, put together a really appealing sound. And after that, Nothing was ever the same. Fogarty has one hit that people know center field. Put me in the coach. I'm ready to play today.
3: Good song. Yeah.
2: And we make, we make fun of CCR for being on, you know, all of the soundtracks of these these Disney movies. But, th- like, the one thing that Fogerty can produce on his own that is, like, made basically for a Disney movie is just ridiculous. <laughs> and then he's got all these other songs that, like, are painful i think he has a, a album that's called zombie eyes yeah. i'm not the Zombie kidding. it's yeah. just terrible oh
3: my god
0: i, I do like and, and we don't spend a lot of time on fogarty's solo uh, career i do like the other two singles from center field which is uh, rock and roll girls i like that one a lot and then old man down the road which is the one he was sued uh by uh Soul in fantasy for plagiarizing himself it sounds like run through the jungle but old man down the road's a pretty good tune too but other than that, I the zombie was was a really awful album. He had a one called Blue Moon Swamp in the mid '90s, which was decent. And, and I remember seeing him do a VH1 special on Blue Moon Swamp, and there was some there was some okay stuff there. But you know, Jeff, you're right. This was you know it was a band. Fogarty led them and wrote, but all the pieces contributed to their to their wild success over that short period of time. He was also hilariously
1: the irony is that CCR were so prolific during their their heyday three albums in 69 you know and then you've got also you know two albums in 1970 and then John Fogerty's a solo artist put out like <laughs> one album every four years or something like that he broke it all up for nothing yeah. it seems like he got rid of everything and then he realized oh no i i, I I don't really have that much to say <laughs> which is just sad yeah. but uh, what can you do you know you celebrate the music and you're just grateful that it exists that's right Political Beats I Scott- just, by, the, by the way I just looked up the cover of Eye of the Zombie Pretty, and my god it yeah. is the most embarrassing thing I've ever seen
0: <laughs> it looks like it should be something out of like They Live the Rowdy Rowdy Piper movie one yes. of the villains uh, Political Beats Scott Bertram Jeff Blair and Philip Wegman from the Washington Examiner talking CCR and we come to our final portion of the program where all of us way in with two albums that you should own from our artist and five tracks that you need to hear. We'll see how varied these are today. Last time, Ryan Adams, we had a ton to choose from. We'll see, we'll see what happens today. Philip, you're up first.
2: I'm, I'm afraid that we're all going to say very, very similar things. Uh, <laughs> hands down, um, I think you obviously have to go with Cosmos Factory and then also I'm going to go with Green River. I think those are two that are, are worth keeping. And your five songs? My five songs, obviously, Fortunate Son, just because of the history. And um, then I definitely like Heard It Through the Grapevine. Uh, Proud Mary, you can't, cannot uh, forget, because, you know, it, it made them. Um, and then Bad Moon Rising. Oh.
0: Um, unfortunately, I, I'm going to echo, well, maybe maybe it's fortunate. Maybe you don't have to spend as much money getting multiple uh, albums, because <clears throat> Green River and Cosmos Factory are my two CCR albums as well. Willy" and the Poor Boys is, is very close, but I think Green River just a cut above. And on the songs, uh, Green River, I think, is the essence, like I said, the, the apex of, of those first three albums that Swamp Rock Field at CCR had kind of come up with. Green River is, is right where that all comes together. I think uh, Commotion from Green River also is on my list of five. I'm trying to go, you know, both ones you might know and ones you might want to hear. Midnight Special from Willie and the Poor Boys. It's a cover song, Mm -hmm. but again, CCR makes it their own completely. Uh, Long As I Can See the Light might be my favorite CCR song. There's tons to choose from, but Long As I Can See the Light's in the team picture, and certainly in the top five. And I think you have to go here, Have You Ever Seen the Rain? Not just for the craftsmanship of the song, but what it means in in the uh, in the history of the band and what was going to happen next. there's so much going on in that very short amount of time of "Have you ever seen the rain that's 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 my five
1: Jeff. Okay, well, I was going to also uh, say Green River and Cosmos Factory, but uh, since you guys have both done that, I'm calling an audible, <laughs> and, I, and I'm I'm going to say uh, the first album I would recommend is uh, the debut Creedence Clearwater Revival. It's the 1968 self-titled debut. Uh, I think really all the elements of greatness were actually there originally. Uh, Fogerty wasn't writing uh, epic songs yet; he wasn't, you know, hitting that Proud Mary uh, groove yet, but. It's such a fun album. It's brisk. It's brief. There isn't a second on it other than I'd say you know the the middle of Suzy Q where yeah, they ramble yeah. on too long that you will uh, regret hearing. And it's got some real real quietly underappreciated gems like Porterville and Walk on the Water. Cosmos Factory is the other one I'd recommend. I don't need to explain this, people. You understand why. Uh, my five songs, uh, Bootleg off of uh, Bio Country, is the first one I recommend. Uh, the classic example of the underappreciated CCR album track. I could listen to that rhythm bed uh, basically all day and never get bored. It'd be a great way to actually just sort of like, you know, write or read or <laughs> do the dishes too. It just it keeps you moving. Uh, the second one is uh, Wrote a Song for Everyone. Off of Green River. I've already spoken quite at length about why I think that's one of the most majestic things that Fogarty ever wrote, CCR ever did. Uh, a personal commentary that could be a social commentary. Uh, kind of it's the perfect embodiment of how CCR songs can mean so many different things legitimately and intentionally to uh, different people and all be valid. Uh, Don't look now, it ain't you or me, off of Willie and the Poor Boys. If you're talking about political CCR, that's the smartest, most profound, and also uh, you know most uh, you know most deceptive. There's the sleight of hand there. You don't realize uh, that that Fogarty is saying something really devastating about the uh, the class structure of the American society with that song until you listen hard. And it's just it's also just a in tune. Yeah. Looking Out My Back Door is my fourth song. Uh, this is a guy who apparently seems to have been a profound depressive in his lyrics. It's nice <laughs> to see him feeling happy for once. You know, I want to see elephants dancing on the lawn Sunday myself. This is a great song. Uh, and it talks about just getting back from Illinois, uh, which means that he, he got out of you know, you know, the, uh, the tax hell. That is our state here in Chicago. <laughs> and then finally, um, have you ever seen The Rain? I agree with everything Scott said about it. I think we're all in agreement. This is one of the finest songs that CCR ever did. It, it, it has so many different meanings, both personal and political. And um, it's just a beautiful tune. I mean, that's the thing. There's beauty on that song. It is something that you listen to and you can feel consoled by or you can feel outraged by. You can feel so many different things when you listen to so many of CCR's songs. Uh, That's why they're one of the greatest rock bands, I think, in the history of popular music. That's why we are all importuning you to please check out Korean's Clearwater Revival. Check them out on a basis more than just the hits. You've heard the hits, and the hits are great, but buy their albums find their albums you can literally even assemble a playlist on YouTube of every single song in their discography if you are so inclined so you don't even have to pay money for it <laughs> if you want but this was a great band and I was a pleasure to talk about them today
0: and there it is our Political Beats look at the career of Creedence Clearwater Revival and the love of them from our guest Philip Wegman from the Washington Examiner find him at WashingtonExaminer.com at Philip Wegman on Twitter Philip thanks so much for joining us on the show Thanks so much for having me. There we go. This has been a presentation of National Review. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right there at nationalreview.com. Click over to podcasts and find all of our old and new episodes. Mondays is when the new episodes are released. Jeff, another fine episode. I think we should do it again next week.
1: I think that's a wonderful idea, my friend. Outstanding.
0: This has been a presentation of National Review. This has been Political Beats.